We'll be spending the next several weeks in Romans 3 today. We'll just pick up the first eight verses. Let me begin at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some weren't faithful? Does their unfaithfulness, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By, my, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Would you bow with me? Father, we come to you now in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, our God, our King. Uh, we are thankful that we can enter into your presence and ask for help and assistance because of Christ. And that we find in you a friendly face and not a hostile one. And so we ask you today for mercy, Lord, to serve you. Lord, like the axe or like the saw, we ask you to wield us. Lord, and that all the glory go to you for you are the one doing the work. We pray that you would... Uh, minister to the hearts and minds of that of those who are here, Lord, as we deal with this text. And Lord, as I always ask, or I've been asking as of recent, that if there's anything that would keep me from serving as a tool in your hands, an instrument uh, by which to bring glory to your great and righteous and holy and awesome name, I pray that you would move it so that I could serve you. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister as well to your people so that they may be able to receive from you. We want you to be honored in everything that is said and done today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. Well, let me just start off with a common experience that we all have, or at least for most of us, which is the Discover Living Water class. Uh, if you're a new attender, to Discover, uh, new attender to Living Water, then you may not be familiar with it. Let me tell you a little bit about what that is. So for those who are recent or new attenders to Living Water, we try to find out who you are, and we try to direct you, as many in this room have already experienced, to our Discover Living Water class, and that's our first step to getting involved in the life of the church. And in that class, what we try to do is take time to explain a little bit about the history of the church, a little bit about where we stand on certain beliefs, foundational beliefs, and then some of our distinctions, as well as lastly, tell you how uh, to get involved in the life of the church in various ways to be a part of this local body of believers. For those who have experienced the class, you know from that experience that um, part of that class looks like the aspect of it is that we do some teaching, and then at one point in the class, uh, each session, we open the floor for questions and answers. And then generally, uh, after having done this for a number of years, there's generally a, a question or two or three uh, where people begin to ask questions, and whoever's leading the class, one of our elders, uh, takes time to uh, respond uh, to those questions to the best of their ability. And then if it's, of course, if it's one of those questions they can't fully answer, they'll try to connect with the person outside of class. And, uh, and that's kind of what we try to do. Now, sometimes we do a good job and we answer those questions in ways that people 
uh, like those answers, and sometimes we do a good job and we answer those questions and people don't like the answers, and thus they decide to uh, move on to another church uh, family and to locate there and serve God in that capacity, and that's great. That's okay. Well, in today's text, we are in a similar kind of situation where Paul has been doing some teaching, and now he kind of gets to question and answer time, and he's going to be doing some answering of questions by sometimes asking other questions, and so there's lots of questions in this text, and this is kind of the idea, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, that Paul is kind of in a conversation with an imaginary uh, dialogue partner who we believe to be uh, a, a Jewish person, a Jewish representative. We might even say Paul is dialoguing uh, with his former way of life. Paul the Jew is dialoguing with Paul the Christian, uh, and it may be a way of thinking about that and why, how he used to think about the world versus how he does now in light of the Christ event. And so in these eight verses, he's going to address some of the implications of what he has been talking about or implying about the state of Jews and Gentiles before God as it deals with this concept of the final day of judgment. Now, he's going to raise some of the topics that he's not going to deal with fully until he gets later in the letter. Uh, he's going to unpack those things in far more detail and explain his thoughts as we get to some of these later chapters. Here, he's going to just briefly touch on them. He's going to briefly address them. Now, Paul is addressing things that are of concerns to people during his day, and he's, he's, he's trying to address these implications. My focus today is not so much going to be on that. By way of that, I really want to bring out two things about God's character that Paul brings out in addressing these concerns that I think are helpful for us today. So I want to bring out those two concepts a ways of thinking about God uh, as a result of Paul addressing these concerns that are relevant for the people of his day. So as we look at this passage, we should be aware right up front for those who may not know, uh, if you've not had a chance to do a study of Romans, uh, the scholars tell us that this particular eight verses uh, in Romans is probably, if not the most difficult, one of the most difficult uh, passages in this letter to try to interpret. Uh, you get lost in the questions. Who's asking what questions? And by that, what is the logic of the questions that are being asked? And so I'll do my best to try to uh, follow it. Uh, not saying I'm going to be perfect, but I'll do my best to try to unpack it to get at those kind of concepts as best as we can. I think Peter's words here become extremely relevant in light of the text that we're facing. Peter said this at one point. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul, has also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." I think today's text is a good example of what Peter was speaking about when it comes to the writings of Paul in this particular section of Romans. And so we're dealing with an extremely difficult text. So what have we seen so far in the book of Romans? So just as by way of review, first of all, Paul opened this section by talking about this concept that God's wrath was already being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings. And Paul started off by arguing, uh, pointing to 
the Gentile problem in the world as he perceived it during his day. The Gentiles are what Jews would never want to be called sinners. He stated, of course, that the Gentiles had openly rejected God's revelation in natural creation that testified to his existence and instead opted to embrace idolatry in various forms. And that led to all kinds of ungodly living among the Gentiles. And thus, they were worthy of the sentence that God would bring upon them of his wrath. And then surprisingly, Paul makes a turn in chapter 2 to confront his Jewish counterpart in conversation, to say likewise that the Jews as well were in the same spiritual boat as the Gentiles. This is somewhat surprising, I'm sure, to his audience since they didn't think about themselves in that way. But he confronts them with their own hypocrisy and says, hey, listen, you may be looking down on them, but you sin in a similar way as well in your own life. And because of that, God's not going to treat you differently when it comes to the standard of judgment. And although you're God's elect people and although you have God's law and although you have the sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham as means of signs of the covenant, none of that is going to be to, give, to grant you an exemption on the final day of judgment if you continue down this way and path of sin. And so as Paul is going to allude to, as you'll see in the upcoming weeks, he's going to get to this concept of, of idea that both Jews and Gentiles are in the same place when it comes to judgment and ultimately in need of the exact same answer when it comes to reconciliation or salvation by God. Both Jews and Gentiles are sinners. Now, Paul also ends chapter 2 by giving us this concept of talking about or inferring or getting towards or pointing forward towards this idea of that there is this Gentile change, that if the Gentile is obedient, uh, where the Jew has been disobedient, then their obedience might count for the inward circumcision, because what it really is about being a Jew is not an outward thing, but an inward thing. Here, pointing to that idea of an inward transformation of one's heart is really what God is after. And it's those thoughts that have led up to this series of questions that we're going to find in these verses. The text kind of breaks down nicely into two even sections for us, verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 8. We'll first start off with 1 through 4 to draw out the first concept about God's character that I want to highlight in the text. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 again. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The question is asked, if I could phrase it this way, is if what you said is true, Paul, about the Gentile and Jewish situation when it comes to this final day of judgment. And really what God is trying to get after is an inward condition more so than an outward condition. 
then what value is there in really being a Jew and having circumcision? You know, why should I continue to live as a Jew if that is the case? Uh, if being a Jew, if being a member of God's family is not going to grant me some special privileges on this final day of judgment, and I'm going to be in the same situations, then what's the reason in, in, in being part of this people group? Or as Dr. Bird put it, uh, to put it bluntly, one could ask Paul, what is the point of being Jewish then? Why not apostatize from Judaism as some aristocratic Jews did, like Tiberius, Alexander, or the great-grandchildren of Herod the Great? And most likely the Gentiles who were hearing this letter read, uh, we believe perhaps by Phoebe, as Paul commends her in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, to them. And most likely she's a person who probably is going to read this letter to them. Maybe they're thinking the exact same thing in light of their hearing the argument that Paul is making. They're thinking, yeah, yeah. I mean, what benefit is there to being a, a Jew if that's the case of things before God on the final day? And we might expect the answer to be, well, really there's none at all. But that's not what the text says. Paul doesn't dismiss and say that there are some privileges to being a Jew. We don't find that here written by him. We actually find just the opposite in the text. No, he says there are some advantages, and by saying that, he wants to communicate a message to his Gentile audience as well. Dr. Moose sums it up this way. Paul warns his mainly Gentile audience that they should not interpret the leveling of distinctions between Jew and Gentile in terms of God's judgment and salvation as the canceling of all of the privileges of Israel. So what might be some of those privileges. Well, the way Paul used the language here, it looks as though he's going to give us a list of benefits. And later in the book, he will, or later in this letter, he will list a number of the benefits and privileges that Israel has. But for now, he only gives us one in his list. If you look at the text, you'll notice what he says there. Israel was entrusted with the sayings or oracles of God. And by using the word entrusted in this way, Paul is communicating the concept of stewardship, not ownership. Stewardship, not ownership. Now, the Old Testament conveys this idea on several occasions. Let me give you two examples where we see this privilege that Israel has when you put them on the map and you look at all the other nations in the world and compare their story to Israel's story. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 reads this way. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that's statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The psalmist years later would pick up a similar thought and say this about the benefit of God giving his word or sayings promises to the nation of Israel. Psalm 147. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Israel has a special privilege among all the nations of the world that Israel is the trustee of God's sayings. Let's pause for a moment and just think about that. 
God entrusted his words, first of all, to Moses, to David, the prophets, and all the other authors of what we consider to be part of our Old Testament. It was a charge of this one nation, Israel, to preserve those words for later generations, to obey those words, and ultimately to share those words with other nations. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. No other nation in the world throughout history could ever make this claim. No nation on the earth can ever make the claim that God had given his words to them to keep. Only Israel was entrusted with his words. Why? Because he had created them as a nation and he had clearly established a unique relationship with them to represent him among the peoples of the world. Think about what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 43. But now, but now thus says the Lord, he created you, O Jacob. He formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by, your, by my name. You are mine. So from Paul's perspective, being a Jew was and still is of immense value to God. And because of divine election, which still stands, they are loved. They are the one nation that has been conceived by God, preserved by God, and for whom God still has a plan. We're going to see Paul unpack that in later chapters. However, as we said before, it's one thing to have what God says. It's an entirely different thing to actually do what he said. As we read through the Old Testament, if you're in your Bible reading program and you were working your way through the Bible, you're going to run into time and time again that Israel is known for numerous failures to comply to God's commands. And the question is raised by their unfaithfulness. Will their unfaithfulness to the covenant that they have with God influence God's faithfulness to the covenant? They've been an unfaithful partner. Then now will God likewise become an unfaithful partner to the covenant because they've not been faithful? Paul adamantly rejects this idea with the emphatic no. It doesn't matter the fact that they've been unfaithful. God will never be unfaithful. He always keeps his word despite who he's in relationship with not keeping their word. Paul sums it up in this way, maybe an allusion to Psalm 116 when he writes, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Dr. Morris explains truth is a quality of persons as well as words. Here it stands for complete reliability. God is to be accounted as thoroughly reliable. God keeps his words, whereas humans do not always keep their word. And thus we come to the unavoidable conclusion that humans fall into the category of liars. Have you ever experienced a person not keeping their words? I heard an amen over there. Let me use someone for the best examples. Even the best humans who love us and are committed to us at times fail to keep their word. Let me draw two examples from my own life experience. My parents love me. They're dedicated to me. and They're out for my good. When I was in high school, I went to driver's ed, and driver's ed at that point, uh, the way it was arranged in Texas, was that uh, you would go to school all day, you would finish high school, and then it was a class for about two hours after school for about six to eight weeks. I don't remember how long it was exactly, but it was about 
a month and a half to two months where we would start off with the written part and then if you pass that you could go into the driving part and you were in a group of about four kids and that's generally what it took to get the amount of hours in for you to get your license and, and that was a nice benefit. Well, that also meant because I didn't have a car and I couldn't drive legally that someone had to pick me up. And at that point, uh, when I, where we were living at in proximity to my high school, my high school was about 45 minutes away driving. So you can imagine what a walk home would look like for me, <laughs> right? It would be, let's just say, an endeavor. So my parents knew that I was taking driver's ed because they had put me in it and they had promised that they would come and pick me up after driver's ed. And for most of the days, right after work, my mom would come from the south side of Houston or my dad, he was on the, she was on the southeast, he was working on the southwest at that time, I think, and they would drive back. And so they were about 45 minutes from our house and then they had to drive another 45 minutes to get to me. So, so you can imagine the trip. So I, I remember on one particular occasion, uh, I was at the school and uh, I was waiting, and so we were sitting in the front of the school on the steps, large high school, kind of like CD, real big high school, covered a lot of ground, had a lot of acreage, huge parking lot. So I'm sitting on the steps of the school that lead up to the main entrance, and I'm waiting, and I'm watching all the other kids' parents come by and pick them up and pick them up and pick them up. And so I'm sitting outside, and, you know, uh, time keeps passing, and the sun starts to go down, and an event starts at the school. And parents start showing up for this evening event. The, event, the event, evening event starts and ends. And the people who had come to the event were now leaving the school. And I'm starting to realize that nobody's coming to get me. <laughs> so I asked the custodian if I could come into the school and use the telephone. And I call home. And they pick up the phone. And they're surprised to hear my voice. Oh, that's right. We forgot about you. We got to come and pick you up. Now I have to wait the additional travel time for them to come get me. I think I got home about 10 o'clock that night from school to get up the next day at 6 and to make it to school for the next day. My parents loved me. Was it intentional that they did that? No. But did they fail to keep their word? Now, some might say, well, they did, in a sense, keep their work. They still did come and get you, but it was only because I had called them. Perhaps if they'd woken up the next morning, they would have realized I wasn't there. <laughs> they were like, hey, where's Ben at? He just, he just, he's not like, has anybody seen him? He was like, no, no, he's at school already. Oh, that's good. Let him just get through another day. <laughs> I don't know, but sometimes they even fail. But that also worked to my advantage sometimes. There were some times I remember on very rare occasions where my parents would promise because we were at some other place's house, person's house and perhaps they had, I'd engaged in some um, ungodly behavior and they would say stuff like they'd give you that look and they'd be like, when we get home, you know what's going to happen. You better get it together. But, you, but when we get home, I promise you, we're going to get this straightened out. Then hours would pass, right? We'd be locked up in conversation, things would be going on, and we would kind of cool our act down. Some hours later, we'd get home and they were just going. And did you notice that they did not remember that they were supposed to get you. <laughs> and so as a result of that, you would just play it cool and go to bed. And guess what? The next day, they didn't get you, right? They had promised that they were going to bring judgment, but they didn't. And that was a reason to praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that was, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> nah, that, that, that was not a reason to praise the Lord, you know. They broke their word. They should have kept their word and, 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 and disciplined me. <laughs> but that's what Paul's arguing here, right? Whether for the good or for the ill, God always keeps his word. So Paul ends this section with a quote from Psalm 51, a very familiar psalm from David, and he quotes a specific part of that. Now, David had sinned with Bathsheba. Nathan had uh, come and confronted him, and he's writing this penitent psalm, which many of us probably have prayed in our own lives at various points when we sin and we've come before God, and this, this has been of a benefit for us. But he draws upon this text because he wants to show that God is faithful even when he judges not just when he blesses, because in both cases, he is keeping his word. Think back about the covenant that God had made with Israel. Remember in Deuteronomy, that covenant was both of blessings and of curses. It had to do with how the people had responded to the covenant. If they were obedient and faithful, then blessings. But if they were unfaithful to keep the covenant, then curses. In both cases, when God acts, he is faithful when he blesses and when he judges sin. In both scenarios, God is being true to his word. Now, the reason Paul is raising this idea, because it seems like more often than not during his day, there was more of a leaning towards God's faithfulness only being towards blessings and not towards judgment. And we understand that. We all could, could identify with that. I like the idea of God blessing me. I don't like the idea of God judging me. Right? And so I'm, I'm probably going to lean in that direction. But what Paul is arguing is that God is faithful in everything he does, even when he's in the position of handing out wrath because of human sin. The Levites of Nehemiah's day, they express the same kind of thought. Notice what they say. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. God is righteous when he hands out judgments. Paul goes on to reiterate this thought of God's faithfulness later to Timothy when he sums up and says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful even when he judges. So that's the first idea. God is faithful when he judges. Here's the second one, which it brings out in the text. God is righteous when he judges. So for humans to be righteous, drawing upon an Old Testament concept, is this idea that we conform to some standard outside of ourselves, namely here, God's standard for humanity. But with God, there is no standard outside himself that he must conform to. There's no higher authority that he must answer to that's higher than him that controls or directs his actions. God only conforms to his character. 
And all of his actions are always consistent with his character. And thus we conclude that judgment is the righteous response to sin from a God who is holy. So let's look again at verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. But then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So flowing out of this idea that Paul is raised in Psalm from Psalm 51, Paul begins with a question. Is it fair and just of God, speaking from a Jewish context, for God to punish the Jewish person at final judgment if their unfaithfulness ultimately has led to God receiving glory? Paul's response is that God does not act in an unrighteous way when he dispenses wrath on his people because if he were unjust in doing that, then he wouldn't be able to dispense wrath on the final day of judgment, which is a concept that they all agreed God would do, which is to judge the world. Dr. Moo phrases it this way. He says, God's faithfulness is ultimately not to Israel, but to his own person and promises. God is therefore righteous when he punishes his people for their sin as well as when he rewards them for obedience. Or as Dr. Rungi, I like the way he puts it in plain language. He says in verses 5 through 8, Paul outlines his complex logical argument exploring the implications of unrighteousness. Paul does not advocate unrighteousness here. He derails the notion that our unrighteousness makes God's righteousness Stand out all the more, like how Mike last week gave that illustration to us about taking a jewel, a diamond, and putting it on a cloth, like when most of us get a chance to buy our engagement ring for our uh, uh, fiance, that kind of idea. He says the question stems from the notion that people exist to bring God glory. If this concept is true, then perhaps sinning more might be a good way to put God in a better light. But Paul's answer in 3.6 is his no-way line that he uses throughout the book. He also makes clear at the end of 3.5 that it is purely a hypothetical notion that seems logical only from a human perspective. Since judgment involves punishment for sin, Paul rhetorically asks why the sinner is condemned if sin makes God's glory abound. He rephrases this concept in 3.8 in the form of an exhortation to do evil so that good may come about. Of course, Paul is not advocating this course of action, but by proposing the opposite behavioral extreme, he lays the groundwork for these valuable lessons. And here it is. There are no benefits to sin and evil, whether white lies or wanton debauchery. Sin accomplishes nothing but storing up more wrath for the day of judgment. Sin will not profit the Jew or anyone. But that is the way they take toward an attitude towards sin. Let's take a quick moment and just walk through a few biblical examples about God's righteousness being displayed when he judges sin. 
So before creation, of course, we know that God, as he declared himself to be to Moses, he said he is, I am. That's how he declared himself to be. This means that his character remains consistent throughout all ages, before time, now, and in the future. We see God's judging righteousness as opposed to his saving righteousness when he sentenced and expelled Adam and Eve for their willful disregard for his command in the Garden of Eden. Later on, we see his righteousness when he judged the world with the flood because of the rampant sin that reigned in hearts and the actions of humans throughout the earth. And it was his righteousness that was displayed when Assyria conquered Israel and later Babylon dismantled Judah for their insistence on not abiding by the covenant that God had entrusted to them. In each of these cases, it was interesting that God allowed these people choices and they opted for the latter of disobedience. See, whether sins are big or small in our view is really not the issue. The central argument here is this, that sin brings judgment. And when God judges, he is righteous in his act of judging. Maybe another way to say this is that God is always constant. He has been righteous, is righteous, and will always be righteous. The variable in the situation is always us. Because we're always struggling between whether we want to sin or not. And in the mindset of these people, for their thought, heaping on more sin in the name of bringing more God, more glory, was a fallacious thought. Because it will not affect God's character. But what it will affect is our condemnation before God as we continue in sin, and we do not accept his means of reconciliation through putting our trust in his son as our means of salvation and our only way to receive the righteousness of God for that final day. Well, what might be a couple of implications that we could use before we close out our time together? One, I think the sinner and the saint can both have confidence alike in the fact that God is faithful. The sinner for one reason and the saint for a different reason. The sinner can have confidence that God will be faithful, that if they live their entire life always refusing to repent, never, never choosing to put their trust in Christ, never responding to God's offer, then they can take it to the bank that what they will receive from God on the final day is wrath and fury. They can cash that in. It's as good as gold. Now for the saint, very different circumstances. You can count on God's faithfulness for your salvation through Christ. Listen to what Jesus says to Paul in calling him. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
by, based on what Jesus says, that if you have faith in Jesus and his death, his resurrection as your only means of righteousness before God, then you are a saint because God has made you a saint. Because as Jesus has said, your sins have been forgiven and you have been sanctified through the work of the Spirit. And you can have confidence that God is at work in your life. I believe this is why Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, said what he did about what God was doing in their lives because of his confidence in God's reliability. This is what he said to them. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And just like those Christians, God is at, was at work in their life. He is the same way at work in your life. And he will continue to do that until the day of Christ's return where he will bring that to completion. You can have confidence in God that he will keep his word because he is faithful in all his actions. And one of those things that he has been faithful in is that he has freed you from all condemnation. The other implication we must consider as it relates to the righteousness of God is to believers. In this sense, as a warning to Christians who might think it be okay to dabble and play with and deal with sin. Dr. Moog offers this thought. All too often we Christians have presumed that God's grace to us exempts us from any concern about our sin. Particularly is this a danger among Christians who share with me the belief that God sovereignly maintains the regenerate in their salvation till the end. Too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory and not for our blessing. That his righteousness is beautifully displayed when he judges as well as when he saves. We want to stand on the promises of God, and this is entirely appropriate. appropriate. But we must not forget that God promises in both the Old and New Testament to rebuke and chastise his people for sin as well as to bless them out of abundance for his grace. Dr. Rangi, in giving a warning of similar nature, says this, Paul's hypothetical notion here may sound outrageous, but not as much as you might think. Attitudes towards sin happen to change over time. Not every sin is so overtly oppressive that we long to escape it. We can even come to regard sin as a part of who we are. A personal quirk that others just need to accept and something that we do not want to give up. Under those circumstances, we may start looking for reasons to justify our sin. The disobedience Paul describes as Romans is likely not self-indulgent sin. All sin breaks our fellowship with God. No matter our motivations or justifications, we provoke the same consequence if we continue in sin. God's righteousness ought to be a warning even to believers that sin ought not to be dabbled with and that we ought to take it seriously in whatever form we see it in our lives and seek by the Spirit's power to rid ourselves and move ourselves far from it. In this text, Paul has told us that God is both faithful and God is righteous even in judgment of sin. And that God's character never changes despite our shortcomings. And thus, he is always worthy of trust and allegiance. 
and that the believer must live his or her life for God's glory and not for our personal satisfaction. And so I sum up and conclude with Paul's own words. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word that you have afforded us. And we thank you for these beautiful reminders from Paul's text of this great salvation that we have through your son, Jesus, the Messiah. We thank you that, Lord, we are able to have confidence on the day of judgment because of what Christ has done and because our, firm, our trust rests firmly in his work and not our own. That it will not be through our law keeping that will make us right before you. But this other way that Paul is going to explain in the upcoming days, a righteousness that is apart from the law, a righteousness of God that is by faith. We pray for God that we will rejoice in the fact that you are faithful and that you are righteous even when you are judging sin. Your character is consistent. And it's your character that we bank on for our salvation, that you will keep the promises that you have made. And in that, we find confidence. Help us to live in light of that by the power of your spirit in accordance with your word that Jesus might be glorified among the nations. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and great and mighty name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing a final song, and then we'll release you.
some of that for you. I'll take time to do that. Let me pray and then let me let you have time to just get to, to fellowship with people. God, we thank you for another wonderful time together. Thank you for the joy of friendship, of uh, common faith to share with other believers. And we thank you for this joy of being able to come to this place and just be reminded of your great work in the world and that we get to be a part of that. I pray that you bless your people as they leave this place, Lord, to honor you in every way. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together with one voice you may glorify God and Father, God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. We bless you in the name of Christ. Please live your life for his glory this week. You're dismissed. We'll see you later.